The 2023 college football season will be the end of one era of college football. The college football playoff is coming to a close. Well, at least the four-team playoff will be after this year. We'll be going to 12 teams, and also realignment will take hold after this season. So in some ways, it's the end of college football as we know it. How do we feel about that? Welcome back to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I am Blake Topmeyer, alongside Gentry Estes from the Nashville Tennessean, sports columnist at the Tennessean. Gentry covers the NFL as well as the SEC. He's made several stops around the SEC and is graciously filling in for John Adams Today, we're going to get into some of the latest happenings on the uh, the spring football front, discuss some of the, the headlines occurring there in the last few weeks. But first, discuss uh, some of the change in the bigger landscape of college football and what we think of, of some of these evolutions. Gentry, I always joke that John has covered the SEC for about 75 years. Uh, you have not done it quite that long, but you're you're pretty well-traveled in this uh, in this conference, give folks kind of the the rundown of, of your past covering the SEC. Yeah, maybe not seventy five years, but uh, <laughs> you know, I've maybe half that or close to it. Now, I, I I at one point or another have covered probably half the league as a beat writer or somebody who's who's focused on them. I've I've worked in in Alabama, in Georgia, in Kentucky, and now in Tennessee. That's a lot of teams. Been in uh, been a lot of places. I was at the Georgia Dome when the tornado hit. I was actually at the first SEC championship game years ago, being uh, being from Alabama. So yes, I feel like I'm pretty well versed in uh, in talking about SEC uh, football. Yeah, and now you're a columnist at, at the Tennessean, so of course you can be freewheeling with your opinions, which is great because this is SEC football unfiltered. So we'll keep the the filter off and 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 dive in here. Um, as I mentioned in in the opening. Gentry, it's it is we're, we're tying the bow on the four team playoff era this year, and it's going to be kind of tidy. This is actually the tenth season for the four team playoff. I don't know if that's really how they had it designed up front. Is that they're going to do this for ten seasons and pivot? But it's it's going to make a clean break here. Um, and then also with Oklahoma and Texas coming into the SEC, USC and UCLA coming into the Big Ten in twenty twenty four. This really is the final season of, of college football in sort of this iteration before we change some of the alignment and, and, um, and, and the, the playoff as well. So let's start with the playoff. Final year of the, the four-team playoff before we go to 12. How do you feel about that, A? Do you think this is good for the SEC the, the playoff evolution, and do you think it's good for college football a, as a whole? I think it's great for the SEC. I've thought all along with with the desire to do this. I, I think even more so than the way it's currently constructed, I think you're setting up to where you're going to see the SEC dominate this this tournament. I, I, I really believe that. I, I think you're going to see if – you know, unless something pretty dramatic changes, I think you're going to see two, three SEC teams in the semifinals of this most years. Uh, and I say that because, okay, looking at last year's rankings, the SEC would have gotten three teams in, uh, Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. I feel like each of those three teams would have been very difficult to beat by the first couple of rounds, certainly. Um, it would have been positioned to where Alabama as the five would have played Ohio State as the four in the quarterfinal. Maybe you make a case Ohio State gets by them. 
But if Tennessee's lined up against the three seed TCU, um, I think we saw in the national title game how that probably would have gone. And I, I think you're looking at uh, no matter how this shakes out, I think it probably helps the SEC. Now, is that good for college football as a whole? I think you could make a case that it is good that more and more teams have an opportunity to get in from mid-major type conferences. I like that. I, I've always been a proponent. If if I ruled the world and, and got to say what I want to do here, I would make a 16-team playoff and put winners of every conference like the basketball tournament. I've always thought they should do that. One thing I don't like about college football is it's the only sport in the entire world, really. It's the only sports league where teams start a season knowing that they can never lose and still have no chance to win the championship. There's no other, there's no other sports league anywhere where that's the case. And I've always said, take someone from another country and try to explain to them how things work in college football. It would take you hours to get them to understand. I still don't think they would. So I've always been a proponent of, of giving everyone a fair shot, you know, and if you did the 16 team playoff, well, now you got, different regions of one in four seeds where, you know, last year Georgia could have faced off against Troy in the first round or something like that. But I do think, I think in terms of, of the sport as a whole, it's probably a good thing to get more, but I'd still say this, don't be surprised to see the SEC have more of a, a stronger hold on things than they currently do. That's a great point. I actually had never thought about that. You're so right. Like, I don't know whether there is no other sports league where you could run the table in the regular season, and then not at least have a chance to play for for the championship. You may not get there. You may get into the playoffs in another sport and, and flame out, but you're going to make the playoffs. It's it's so right. You can be from a group of five conference, so you know by definition you're in the same league. You're in you're in Division One FBS football. You you play for the same trophy technically as everybody else does, but you can run the table and and not make the the dang thing in in the end. You're right. I think. I think this playoff solves that a little bit. Um, we're going to have a minimum of one group of t- group of five team in the twelve team format. I like that part of it, uh, as do you. I think you know we both love the the NCAA basketball tournament. I know, and so do many many sports fans. For many sports fans, myself included, it's their favorite sporting event, and and one of the reasons why we love that event is the upsets. Now, I don't think you can replicate that in college football, no matter what you do, it's just a different sport. The talent acquisition of football, you know, too, too much of the top talent goes to the big dogs and there's not enough equitable talent for those lower level teams to probably um, do what, what sometimes happens in the NCAA tournament. However, I do think we could see some first round upsets from those group of five teams. I could see that happening. Maybe even a quarterfinal upset from a group of five team. I think that would be kind of spicy, add some intrigue before we get to the eventual top dogs in the end. And and, and you point out something um, of note as well when it comes to the SEC in this playoff. I always think about it in terms of how many teams are they going to get in of a 12-team playoff. I, th- I think there are going to be some years where the SEC and the Big Ten, between the two of them, I think they could snag all six at-large bids in some seasons. I think many years it's probably going to be like four or five of the six I think there will be the occasional year where all six at-large bids go to the SEC and the Big Ten. You make a good point that it's more than just about total bids. It's how many spots are going to be occupied in the semifinals by either you know the SEC or I'll even throw in the Big Ten. I think you're going to have a lot of years where um, 
your, your semifinalists could all be from those two conferences. And I know as it is now, those conferences still, you know, swing a pretty big stick when it comes to playoff. But I, I think, you know, you're probably right. Uh, in, in the next iteration of it, they're going to swing an even bigger stick the later it goes into the playoff because they're going to have more bodies in there. And, and, and we do believe that there's a reason why the SEC has the reputation of, of being the best conference usually has the best teams in the end. And I think that's going to play out in the playoff. How about some of this realignment stuff? I mean, I think there's no denying that uh, Texas and Oklahoma coming into the SEC makes the SEC maybe a little mightier. Um, I think those are two good good brands for sure. And, and the Big Ten has strengthened itself, I think, in some ways by adding USC and UCLA. But what do you think it means for the sport, some of the, the recent realignment that have, has gone on, you know, here in the last couple of years and, and continues sort of to percolate. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it. Um, I, you know, some of this has at least made some sense, but when you start seeing UCLA and Southern Cal go in the big 10, then, then it stops making sense. And, and, and that's not, maybe it, 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 these decisions are all driven by football, right. And football money. But when you consider the fact that, you know, UCLA's volleyball team is going to be taking Thursday flights to state college. You know, I mean, this is it's it's going to be a nightmare for, for those schools with the travel. And um, it just I think it goes against a lot of what college says. It's a you know, these college sports claim to be about, which is for, you know, growth of the student athletes and this sort of thing. I mean, it's it kind of makes a mockery of all that when you see things like cross-country conference membership. I, I, I don't like that. Um, I don't really see a way to stop it uh, with the way things are going. Um, I didn't like from an, the SEC perspective, I, I didn't like adding Texas and Oklahoma. I think it's best for the league uh, to do that, but I, I just, I don't like the idea of, of super conferences, uh, even though I know that's the way it's headed. And, and I think when you look long-term, yeah, I, I think we're, we're envisioning a future here where you probably have three or four super conferences uh, that could eventually even break away, at least in football, and, and compose the, their own competition. And I, I personally don't like it, um, but uh, <laughs> it's happening whether I like it or not. Yeah, I think with every round of, of realignment, it can be a bitter pill to swallow. I think some of the past rounds of realignment were – possibly even more damaging to the sport when we think of what it did to rivalries. Um, we've talked about on the pod before. One thing I do like about the Oklahoma and Texas editions is it, it does disrupt some of, of the matchups, obviously, that were going on in, in the Big 12 and, you know, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. We'll see what happens, um, you know, with, with Bedlam. But it reestablishes at least uh, a rivalry or two. I think, you know, getting Texas and Texas A&M back together is really fun, really good for the sport. That was always one of my favorite games. Uh, I know folks in Arkansas are very, very excited about renewing the old Southwest Conference rivalry with Texas. Um, you know, for, for Arkansas fans of a certain age, they still consider Texas to be their number one rival. Uh, Missouri has always felt like a strange outlier in this conference. Even, even when they were winning the East, they felt like a strange outlier in this conference. So I like that they'll have, you know, a couple of familiar faces it's not really a competitive rivalry with Oklahoma, but they have played them um, really going back 100-plus years. So that's one thing I do like about this expansion that 
has been missing from some previous rounds of expansion. I mean, when the, when the SEC brought in Missouri and Texas A&M, that did nothing for rivalries. It did nothing for matchups. It, it only hurt them, really. And as you said, that's not what fuels this stuff, but I do think that's that's a good byproduct here. And I think it's good business for the SEC to add these these two programs and try to stay you know, one step ahead of the posse or at the very least stay in lockstep with the Big Ten in, in the realignment circus. Is it good for the sport? Uh, yeah, probably beyond those two conferences. You know, it, it's hard to argue that anybody else is coming off better out of this. You know, the, the Pac-12's in scramble mode, trying to survive, trying to land a TV deal, maybe trying to, you know, add another member or two. But nobody that they add can equitably replace what they lost in USC and Southern, uh, in UCLA. Um, the Big 12, I think they did a pretty good job in pivoting and adding, you know, four of the better schools out there. In, in BYU, UCF, um, Cincinnati, and there's one other school that I'm Houston, getting. Houston, Houston, yes, thank you. Um, you know, that's about as good as they could do it, but that doesn't replace losing Oklahoma and, and Texas. So I think for the rest of the sport, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a bummer, and that's the way realignment works oftentimes, right? And, and fortunately, there's, there's winners and losers. I, I worry about the interest in some of those other parts of the country you know, college football has always been a sport, for the most part, where interest is, is rooted in sort of SEC and Big Ten land, but, you know, also Oklahoma and Texas. But I worry about those pockets of the country um, that maybe saw their conferences weakened, maybe saw some of their matchups weakened by some of this realignment and, and what what comes of of that. Um, now how, how important do you think it is that college football becomes more relevant or um, on the West Coast or, or, or that the Pac-12 sur- survives any of this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, obviously that's a huge hit with the L.A. market. I think they'll they'll probably do some things to 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 try to alleviate that. But I, I just don't think there's anything they can do to, to replace that. Um, you know, and you, and you mentioned, I, I think, from from the SEC's perspective what we what this does to scheduling and permanent opponents and and i think i think that's the the part of this that that really is going to end up resonating with fans that that we're not there yet but when we get to this point where they're used to playing certain teams uh and then they don't play them anymore i think a good example would be georgia and tennessee Uh, if you're up near chattanooga that's an awfully big rivalry uh, between those two. Uh, Georgia is an interesting case study here uh, because depending on where you live in the state of Georgia, you have different rivals that you care the most about. Uh, if you're in Chattanooga, it's Tennessee. If you're in Augusta, it's South Carolina, or, or, or you, know, you get towards Savannah, down toward the bottom of the state, it's Florida. If you're in Atlanta, it might even be Georgia Tech. And if you're in Columbus, it's Auburn. That's that's a, They're not going to play somebody. Um, out of all that. So, I, you know, I, I don't know. As, as these leagues continue to grow, I think the Big Ten is going to run into this sort of thing too. And, and, and I feel like that will hurt the sport probably as much as anything because I feel like college football, more than almost any other sport, is driven by these rivalries and certainly in the SEC. So I, I that if you're asking, like, what don't I like about it, that's pretty high on the list um, in terms of, you know, what it could do to some of these other conferences. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, you, you're certainly going to see that where, you know, some of these these programs around the country that that in the past have, 
have been relevant in football, like a Stanford or uh, maybe a UW, somebody like that, uh, you know, probably are, are going to take a little bit of a hit. But I feel like also, um, you know, that that's going to be the case in, in a lot of sports, but in college football, it's going to be the most noticeable. Yeah. And, and you know, I think about a, a school like Oklahoma State, like with, with Texas and Oklahoma out of the way, maybe they're winning the Big 12 a little more f- frequently now. Will it mean as much to that fan base that uh, they're winning the Big 12 with uh, without Oklahoma and Texas in it and that this Big 12 conference is sort of unrecognizable in a way to what it used to be? I, I think in some ways it, it does sort of water it down. You make a, um, a point with the rivalries, you know, with the, the divisions going away, no matter what format is being approved. Some of those second-tier rivalries are going to not happen every year. They're going to start happening once every two years. I think, um, you know, no matter what schedule format they approve, I think it's likely that Tennessee-Florida, which is not, you know, a long historic rivalry, but it was a rivalry that became, you know, very, very heated um, and, and fun for college football in the 1990s. And and we saw, you know, just last year, um, some more life come back into that with Tennessee gaining relevance. That That's one that's probably not going to be played every year. Uh, still haven't had a schedule format approved. We heard from Greg Sankey again this week. Uh, sort of all eyes on Destin. It's not necessarily the hard and fast deadline, but it seems like he really wants to have a, a schedule format approved for 2024 uh, by the Destin meetings, which occur the week of Memorial Day. And the, and the debate continues between a nine-game schedule or an eight-game schedule. Uh, either way, divisions are, are out the window. I've been advocating for a nine-game schedule and playing three rivals for each team, Gentry. Um, can you play devil's advocate? Can you make a pitch for the eight-game and playing one rivalry game? Uh, or are you with me? Do you prefer Do you prefer the nine? I, I prefer the nine. I'm with you on that. For, for the reasons we said, I, I think if you have three permanent rivals, that's a lot better than one. I think you, you get into – I mean, some of the stuff you, you really need to protect. You know, if, if you're Auburn, you need to be playing Alabama and Georgia. That's it. You, you really need to, or, or ten, in Tennessee's case, would that one be Vanderbilt? I mean, I think you would raise a lot of questions that yeah, it would start getting into competitive imbalance. Now, I, I feel like with the three, that's going to happen too. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a minefield to try for the SEC to try to negotiate this. But I think you almost have to go to nine. I mean, this has been discussed for a long time anyway. But with this this many teams, I, I think going to nine is is that's really all they can do. I, that's the only option that makes sense to me and also protects some of these games that we're going to want to see every year. All right, changing gears and getting into one of our favorite topics on the podcast, Jimbo Fisher. Jimbo was in the. Well, I guess a few headlines this week. It was it was sort of much ado about nothing in, in some ways. Many many of you have probably seen now or, or heard the press conference moment where Jimbo at the end of spring practice at Texas A&M wrapped up their spring game. And at the end of spring practice, Jimbo said, I'll take one more question, but it's not going to be from the Houston Chronicle. It's not going to be from Sports Illustrated. Don't like those guys. It, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, gonna gonna be a question for gonna be a good question. We need a good question. Those guys don't ask good questions. Maybe Texags can ask a question. He says, and much was made about this. I think it was way overblown. If you see the clip, Jimbo's trying to joke. He's trying to be funny. I don't know if it really came across. Some of some coaches 
um, you know, can can put forward that humor a little better than others. But to me, the the striking thing about this was that it became news at all, that it became a headline at all. I mean, coach throws a little bit of an elbow, uh, somewhat jokingly at a member of the media, and and it's a big deal. Like, who who really cares? But to me, it speaks to every little thing Jimbo does this year. I think is going to be highly scrutinized. Uh, I think the knives are out. And I think that obviously comes from a, a five and seven season. It, it usually is the type of thing that comes from a coach on the hot seat. I'm not sure if Jimbo's on the hot seat yet because of his buyout. I've, I'm more skeptical than some that that buyout buys him blanket protection. Um, we know Texas A&M's a revenue behemoth, and I, I can't imagine they're going to stomach five and seven seasons forever. Um, but it is the type of coverage that, that normally is reserved for for hot seat type coaches. So what do you make of this, Gentry? Uh, I, I guess the moment itself and, and what it maybe means for Jimbo that he might be even more under the microscope than usual when he can't even make like a slight dig uh, at his beat writer there from from the Houston Chronicle. It, it, it was a lighthearted moment. And I think what happened is I think the Houston Chronicle did ask a couple of questions after this, but it's like, what, what, here's my, what defines a good question? Like, is a good, is he seeing a good question? I think he, he said that a Texags question, meaning a friendly question, like yes. you sure are awesome coach. Talk about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's, that's what he's after. To me, a good question would be how, how in the world can you have the best recruiting class in the country and go five and seven? To me, that's a good question. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, in Jimbo's case, but it, it was a lighthearted moment and it's funny that a lot gets made of that sort of thing. But I think you're right. When you have the season like Texas A&M had last year, when a lot of people were clearly expecting a lot more from that team, then, then yeah, I, I think there is going to be a lot of scrutiny and there's probably going to be a lot of questions that, uh, that Jimbo doesn't really like until he starts winning more games out there. Yeah. I think some, you know, journalists fulfill different roles than others. And some of us are wired a little different than others. If, 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 if the head ball coach is ever at the po- podium begging me to ask a question, I'm thinking, uh, I don't think I'm doing my, my job. That's right. 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 <laughs> so, I'm not sure I would take it as a compliment. Uh, if Jimbo is the one singling you out to, to ask a, a, a question there, but you know, there, everybody expects Bobby Petrino to kind of come in and, and wave this magic wand and, and solve everything at, at Texas A&M. And, and I do think he can help if Jimbo, if Jimbo can get his Texas sized ego out of the way, and actually relinquish some control and let Bobby P call the plays and get his hands on this thing. Um, I think we've seen with a lot of coaches that get too involved in the nitty gritty and refuse to, to be what they are as a CEO. Um, it can catch up with them sometimes. And I think that has worked against Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M. And, and I think Petrino can help. I think Texas A&M is going to be markedly better this year. I don't know that it's going to be a total cure-all, though. I, I I think there's a limit to what Bobby Petrino can do, and part of that limit is based on how good is Connor Wigman in his second season as A&M's quarterback. You know, we saw them play the quarterback carousel last year, whether it was Max Johnson, who's still in the program, seems like he's been college football forever. Um, and, and is still in competition for that job with, with Connor Wigman. We saw Haynes King no longer with that program. And then, and then finally we saw last year, true freshman Connor Wigman finish it out. He was up, he was down. Uh, to me, so much of, of A&M season, you know, all, for all the focus on Bobby Petrino, they've got to get better quarterback play. And, and 
Petrino has an impact on that, right? But um, you know, they, they got to get better at quarterback or it doesn't necessarily matter totally who's, who's calling the plays. What sort of impact do you think Petrino has the potential of, of making there at A&M? That to me was the most fascinating coaching move of any this last offseason. It, it was one of those that when, when reports start getting out about that happening, you're like, really? I mean, it, it was always like, that's, that's a joke, right? Like that's not really happening, but I mean, it, it is, I, I covered Bobby Petrino for a couple of years at Louisville. So I, I've seen it up close, um, you know, for everything you want to say about the guy and from a personality standpoint, there, there's plenty to say, but he is a good coach. And I mean, we saw last year, I guess it was Missouri state went into Arkansas in a game that clearly had a lot of meaning for him and nearly won the thing. Um, I think that shows he is a good coach and he's a very good coach of quarterbacks. Uh, I watched Lamar Jackson come in as a relatively unheralded freshman. And not only did Petrino mold that guy into a Heisman trophy winner in a couple of years, but he also had enough sense to make him the starter right away uh, ahead of about three guys who had more experience I remember that first year when Lamar came in as a true freshman, there was a real, real question at quarterback and a quarterback uh, competition between three guys, all of whom had experience and had a, a pretty good claim on the job. It was one of the more interesting preseason quarterback competitions I've ever been a part of because you really could make a case for any of these guys. By the end of the first game, Lamar, the true freshman that nobody's talking about is the quarterback. And I, I always admired that he had enough guts to, to go ahead and do that because he, he had seen enough in a guy who, quite honestly, at the time was a true a, a two-star prospect who had been largely overlooked. Louisville wanted him as a quarterback. A lot of other teams wanted him as a defensive back. Bobby Petrino is a guy who certainly understands how to coach the position, but he also has a good sense, I think, for the, for the big picture. Uh, when things have gone poorly for him as a head coach – it, it has usually been his inability to get buy-in from a team. Uh, it, it went south for him at Louisville because they, the season kind of turned on him and then guys just quit. And to put him in a, in a role where he's the offensive coordinator, he's not the head coach, he's not going to have to deal with, with people like us all the time and a lot of media expectations, a lot of outside things that he just quite honestly I think hated doing. Um, this could be a low-key brilliant move. Uh, for Texas A&M. It, it really could. And, and I, I think that the upside with a guy like Petrino on staff is is off the charts. Now, I think the floor is pretty low, too, <laughs> when you're, when you're <laughs> yeah. talking about the two personalities involved and how this this could go south. Um, you know, I think there's a reason if Bob Petrino wanted to be an offensive coordinator so bad, there's, there's probably a reason he's not doing it in Tuscaloosa, let's say. Um, so I, I think there's, there's enough awareness of, of what could go wrong here. But uh, fascinating. Fascinating move. Texas A&M is going to be a fascinating. They were going to be a fascinating team to watch this season anyway, but now it's it's off the charts. Yeah, it is. I labeled it as as one of the most um, most impactful coordinator hires of of the off season. I, I really think it has the potential to be. And and uh, yeah, so right with with uh, Petrino. If it if it's not going well there for one reason or other, he may just up and quit. You know, he's not going to suffer any fools um, or put up with a situation that isn't, isn't to his, his liking, but, but the, so maybe a low floor, but also, you know, as far as coordinator hires go, probably a higher ceiling. Uh, You know, when it comes to Jimbo, I said, he's, he's become a convenient punching bag and, and he's probably helped matters uh, certainly with their on-field performance and, and some of the things he said, how much, 
because I do think he's he's become sort of target number one for the media at large. And I know that's a big term, the media. You know, what does that mean uh, exactly? It's changing all the time, right? Um, but but he is often targeted. I think some of that stems back from that infamous press conference last year when he went scorched earth on Nick Saban. Because, you know, even though Saban uh, is not always warm and fuzzy with the media, He's the guy you know, and I do think there's some feeling by folks in our chair that, well, he's earned it, right? He's, he's the greatest coach we've seen in this sport, uh, or you know, if you want to make an argument for, for Bear Bryant, okay, but he, he's on the very, very, very short list for the greatest to ever do it. Uh, he's got the success to back it up, and so you know, I think there's some feeling he's, he's earned a, a right to um, be in whatever mood that, that he's in with Jimbo. I don't know that there's quite that, um, uh, stomach for him. Uh, certainly there's not sort of the kiss the ring nature that I think, uh, some members of our profession have towards Saban. And I think that has made him an even easier target, uh, to be a bit of a a punching bag and a guy you can poke a little bit, uh, as, as the struggles have, have mounted on him in the last year at Texas A&M. How much of that do you think is at play here and and how much do you think maybe that will come to backfire on him sort of what what he said in that um you know now famed presser where he uh called Nick Saban a narcissistic false god <laughs> I, I think what he did with that was just draw national attention to the fact that he had this great recruiting class uh, because I mean, yes, what he said, and obviously the you know everybody just was kind of shocked by by how all that played out. But but in the end, you come away from that knowing that Texas A and M brought in a lot of good players. However, they did it. Uh, you know, it's, all right, watch out for Texas A and M. You know, they they out recruited Alabama. They did something that got Nick Saban riled up. And I know my team didn't. So Texas A and M's doing something you know, that's going to make them a good team. Then they weren't a good team. And and I think that's what happens that they got everyone's attention. And then you you kind of say these things and, and, you know, your team just doesn't back it up. And I think one of the reasons that Nick Saban has the respect he does is that his team in almost every instance backs it up. And even last year, you know, and, and we're going to talk probably more about this with their, with their quarterback situation in the spring and what to expect from Alabama. But I, I think both of us would probably sit here and, and expect Alabama to be a very good team this year. I mean, we have no idea what to expect from Texas A&M. And I feel like if you're, if you're gonna do what Jimbo did last year and get that kind of attention, all right, go win, go, go show that you, you know what it takes to, to outdo someone like Nick Saban and, even though A&M, to be fair, did almost win that game in Tuscaloosa, they didn't have have a very good season. So I think you're you're drawing attention, good, bad, whatever, when you do that, and it turns out the attention was was for a bad team. Yeah, let's dive in further to to Alabama here um, as as we kind of wrap up. Um, you know, some spring games, several spring games occurred on on Saturday. Um, maybe the, the most notable development was in Georgia's quarterback competition. Uh, both the top two quarterbacks, Carson Beck and Brock Vandegrift, played well. Uh, Carson Beck played very, very well, and he was already in the pole position to be the, the heir to Stetson Bennett. He'd been Stetson Bennett's backup last year. That put him in, in 
you know, first spot, first in the pecking order, I believe, uh, to replace Stetson Bennett. And he's done nothing this spring to hurt his standing. In fact, I think he's only strengthened it. Now, Brock Vandegrift is, uh, you know, by all accounts, having a, a decent spring as well. Played played just fine in that spring game. But it's a position where you can only play uh, one at a time. So it will be interesting to see how many quarterbacks Georgia can hang on to here with the portal open uh, in the next 10 days or so. Meanwhile, at Alabama, their spring game on Saturday, still very unsettled at quarterback between Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson. We heard from Nick Saban after Alabama's second scrimmage uh, speak about his quarterback, said some good, some bad. And that's sort of been kind of the narrative coming out of Tuscaloosa this spring is, you know, there are moments where you see some good from these quarterbacks and there's moments where you think, uh uh-oh, do they they got a solution here? And I think there's even some thought, I question this, I think there's even some thought that maybe Alabama will dive into the portal here after they see the list of names that come in in the second window. How do you feel about one versus the other, Gentry? Because maybe it is unfair to compare one program against the other, but fair or unfair, that's the way it's done. And for so long, every program was compared. Alabama was the litmus test. They were the, the, the stick you had to measure against. Now it's Georgia. Georgia seems to have, um, you know, found maybe an answer at quarterback in Carson Beck, whereas Alabama, the search uh, and the battle continues. How do you look at these two right now as we sit here, you know, with spring winding down? Well, with Alabama first, I I think Ty Simpson should should win that job. If he doesn't win that job, I I think there it indicates that they're they're not in a good place at quarterback because I I feel as though. you've got an offensive coordinator coming from Notre Dame who recruited the guy. Um, there's a lot set up for him to be, you know, you're talking about a five-star recruit, a guy who a lot was expected of him. It, it, it would seem to make sense that it would be his turn. Now, if he's not, not ready or he's just not capable of doing it, then I think you do have a guy in Melrose that you can put back there and feel okay about it. But this to me should be Ty Simpson's job. Stetson Bennett was, remarkable at times for Georgia, but I don't think if you look at the quarterback position, you know, clearly Alabama had a guy who changed their team when he was on the field. I think last year's team would have, would have been pretty lost um, without Bryce Young out there. And, and, and I think in games like certainly the one they played in Tennessee, I I think they could have gotten blown out that day if it wasn't for Bryce Young who nearly won the game by himself. Does Alabama, what is Alabama going to look like when they don't have a quarterback who's capable of doing that sort of thing? I think that's what we're going to find out this year. I think they're going to have to get better everywhere else to probably account for that. Most notably their defense. We, we don't talk as much about that, but defensively they did not look like Alabama last season. Georgia looked like how Alabama used to yes. look defensively. Uh, I remember after the Georgia Tennessee game, when Jalen Hyatt came in there and said, Georgia is much more physical than Alabama. And he's right. You know, that, that comment got a lot of attention, but it was pretty clear in watching Tennessee play those two teams that, yeah, there's no doubt. Alabama was was passive defensively. We never – that was something that, that they had not been doing. They need to get a lot better on that side of the ball. Uh, they need to stop all the penalties. Their offensive line needs to be better. There, there's just a lot of questions that they're going to have to improve. And, I and, and look, when you look at the recruiting rankings and what Alabama has on that team – there's no reason to expect that they won't do all these things. But I think what we're seeing is the quarterback's probably, certainly not going to be as good as what they had last year, and, and there's some real uncertainty there. As, as for Georgia, I, I, that's, a, that's a team that's a little more, I guess, stable, you'd say. They're in a better spot all across the board. 
uh, from what they have coming back. And, and I feel like, you know, look, you're, you're talking about Carson Beck. This guy wasn't like a number one in the country kind of five-star recruit, but he was, he was a four-star recruit. He was, he was a good player. And, and uh, I, I feel as though Georgia probably isn't taking as, as big a gamble than say if Alabama was to put Ty Simpson back there. Yeah, and in, in the next couple of weeks are going to be interesting with some of this transfer movement. Of course, the portal reopened on April 15th. It will stay open uh, until we get to May when it when it closes again. And anybody in the portal by May, you know, can still transfer, but it's closed to new additions. So there are a couple there are a couple caveats though to that. One one thing that is not often talked about is, but is important, I think. The SEC has on the books a rule that if you want to be an intra-conference transfer, meaning going from one SEC to another SEC and play immediately, uh, you have to do that before the spring window. So if you want to hop in the portal now and transfer, you don't have immediate eligibility if you're going from SEC to SEC. So if you're looking to improve your team in the SEC, you have to look outside the conference at, at this point. For transfer, so I, I think that affects the situation a little bit for anybody looking for some last-minute transfer help, whether that be Alabama, whether that be maybe even a more greater need at at, at Auburn. Uh, after we saw um, from for them, their their quarterback competition remains very much in flux after the spring. Uh, and then also, I think there's a lot of speculation of what will Brock Vandegrift do as we record this. Been no movement on that front. Uh, maybe this is old school gentry, but I, I tend to think. Brock Vandegrift's best situation uh, might be to stay right where he's at and and spend a year, you know, competing with Carson Beck, see if he can somehow win that job. If he can't, he's still got two years of, of eligibility left. He could transfer after after the season, go anywhere he wants, inside or outside the SEC, and be immediately eligible and 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 be have two years to go be the guy somewhere else if if it came to that. Um, am I thinking too old school there to think that, uh, you know, there, there might be something that the best play for Brock Vandergriff, whether he wins or, or doesn't win this job would be to, to stick it out of Georgia and reevaluate in December and see where he wants to then spend his last two seasons. I, I was just looking, as you were saying that I remember that he had originally committed somewhere else before switching to Georgia, even though he's, he's from Athens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Committed to Oklahoma. Oklahoma, but that was Lincoln Riley's Oklahoma, correct? So yeah. A, yeah. Lot, a lot different. Um, I don't know. Southern Cal's probably going to be looking for a quarterback next year, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm probably thinking old school and and like, hey, stick it out, see what happens in this this competition with Carson Beck. Maybe Carson Beck lights it up this year and goes to the NFL, and then you're the you're the guy next season. Uh, guys don't want to don't want to sit anymore. I, I understand that, and and guys are also aware of where they are with the depth chart. You know, I think Kirby Smart has been wise not to name a starting quarterback this spring. I wrote that recently, that there's no benefit to naming a starter. You want to, as much as possible, prolong these competitions where you like multiple guys and where you're trying to retain depth. But the, the players know, you know, they're, they're, they're the ones in practice every day. They're the ones going through the drills, the scrimmages. They know where they stand. Um, and I don't think there's any denying that, that Carson Beck has, has the first crack at, at this job um, for Alabama. I think there are still some, some belief or some hope, you know, maybe among some Alabama fans, maybe some speculating in the, the media that, you know, if, if we look at the quarterback product here on Saturday in Alabama's spring game, and it's just apparent that Jalen Milrow and Ty Simpson between the two of them, there's more questions than answers there. 
you know, we'll see. Maybe one of them lights it up. But if it goes the other way, I think there's this belief that, well, Alabama's just going to go in the portal and they'll, they'll find their next quarterback there. I really question that. A, that's not something Saban's ever done. No. Uh, he's brought in transfers, but he's not brought in a transfer quarterback at the 11th hour to take the reins of his team. I find it highly unlikely that he's A, going to want to do that. And B, even if he does want to do it, I think the pickings are going to be slim, uh, at least at quarterback, during this portal window. For the most part, I think you're going to have guys that didn't win the starting job in in spring practice. And if you are, you know, I don't know, let's say you're at Oklahoma State. I don't know who their backup quarterback is. Uh, whoever Oklahoma State's backup is, let's say you didn't win the job and he pops in the portal. If you didn't win the job at Oklahoma State, are you going to come in and win the job in three months' time in Alabama? If you didn't win the job at uh, Arizona State, are you going to come in and, and win at Alabama? I, I question that being the answer um, you know, for a program like Alabama. If you're Auburn, boy, that 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 might be bleak enough there in your quarterback room. You know, I'm curious with Robbie Ashford, but who knows? I, I think maybe you take a shot on, on somebody. If you're Alabama, I really think it, it's probably going to need to be Ty Simpson or, or Jalen Milrow. What do you think? Um, you know, I agree with you on saving with the transfer portal. I, I, I can't see him doing that unless maybe there's a guy somewhere who has some sort of tie to Notre Dame and that the coach wants this guy, that that would be the only way it makes sense. You're already in transition with what you're doing, bringing in a new coordinator. And I, I, if you throw that, th- th- look, this isn't a team that's rebuilding in any way. I mean, you 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 don't want to create more problems than at the most important position. I, I don't think they would do that. But uh, you know, it's interesting as you look around the league. And I mean, there's questions all over. And I would say that two of the teams that are better situated at quarterback than anybody else in the SEC right now are the ones that I watched their spring game the last couple of weeks in Tennessee and Vanderbilt. Um, Tennessee, I think, actually is in is in a wonderful position with, with Joe Milton. I, I think that that's a guy who I think people is probably he's probably not getting enough attention for how good a fit he is for that offense and the kind of numbers he's going to be prone to putting up for Josh Heupel this season. And and Blake, we saw the the next guy, the freshman they brought in. And you know, I think let's say you compare Nico at, at Tennessee to, to Ty Simpson. And it's like, I don't think there's going to be any question this time next year that Nico's a quarterback in Tennessee. Uh, from what I saw, that's a very polished guy for, for being a freshman. I was actually impressed with him more so than I thought I would be in that first spring game. Um, and, and I'll say Vanderbilt too. If, if you're looking for, we started talking about transfer portal and, and who could maybe sneak in there. Ken Seals is still at Vanderbilt. It, it's amazing. A guy who started as a freshman for them in 2020, lost the job to Mike Wright, then lost the job to A.J. Swan, who has it now, still at Vanderbilt, still could potentially make that kind of move. I mean, that's the kind of guy you're talking about. Mike Wright already went to Mississippi State. And so, actually, Vanderbilt sitting there with A.J. Swan, who I think is, is, a, is a sneaky good quarterback, is their starter right now. You got Ken Seals behind him, and they got a third guy named Walter Taylor, who was a recruit from Alabama, I'm going to look this up and make sure I'm right. Walter Taylor is six foot six, 235 pounds, and I watched him sling the ball over the field in their spring game. I'm telling you, Vanderbilt is sitting there right now with three quarterbacks that a lot of the rest of the league would like to have. That's quite the advantage for Vandy, and I don't think people really realize it. 
All right, Gentry, let's get a bold prediction then on Van. You going seven and five for the doors? I think they could they could they would I think they'll sniff a ball game this year. I do. I, okay. I think they're they're a good bit better on both lines of scrimmage, and that was kind of where they have, have just not been competitive the last couple of years. And you know, look, people forget it, it happened late in the year. Uh, and they they beat a Kentucky team that was kind of already you know depleted and they then they beat Florida late in the year. So people really weren't paying attention, but Vanderbilt got a couple of wins. I don't think they're going to be a doormat. That said, their whole thing is they need to get competitive against the best teams on their schedule. I mean, they got embarrassed by Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee. And you make the case, well, they had to play Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee, but neither – all those games were just complete blowouts. And, you know, so I, I don't know if they'll be able to, to compete against that kind of competition. But, it, but I'll tell you that since Clark Lee's gotten there, if it's close in the fourth quarter, you better watch out for him. Yeah, what what a, what a situation we're in. You you make a great point with Tennessee with Joe Milton and 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 Nico Yamaliava. Uh, I mean, you can make the case two quarterbacks at Tennessee that Alabama would be fortunate to have. Two quarterbacks at Georgia. You know, when we were talking about Carson Beck uh, and Brock Vandegrift, that could be an upgrade, uh, arguably on, on what Alabama has. Two at LSU and Jaden Daniels uh, and Garrett Nussmeyer who we will see in LSU spring game on, on Saturday. I don't want to sound alarmist because there's a lot of, t- there's still a lot of talent in Tuscaloosa. Uh, but at the, at the game's most important position there, there are other teams in in the conference with answers and we still don't know about Alabama. One thing we do know is Alabama uh, has been well represented in the four team playoff. They've made it seven out of nine years and this will be the final year. So let's see if they can make it. 8 out of 10 before we move on to a new era. Gentry and I will cover it all, and we thank you for listening to us here on SEC Football Unfiltered.